Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor of ag economics here at Purdue. We're going to review the results from the November Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of Farmers from Across the Nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the U.S. to learn more about their perspective on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer Survey was conducted from the 15th through the 19th of November. And Michael, we saw another decline in the Ag Economy Barometer. It dipped this month to 116. That's down five points from last month. And Gee, we've been declining pretty continuously here. I think we've had one uptick in the last, what, five or six months? So, Yeah, I, I think we, we continue to see input costs um, increase. And so I, I think that's, that's largely what's going on here. I mean, the crop prices really haven't changed all that much, uh, particularly the prospects looking, uh, looking ahead at later next year. Uh, and so I, I think this is it's largely, largely due to rising input costs. Yeah, if you look at the uh, index of current conditions, uh, and the index of future expectations, they were both down. So people became less optimistic about what was taking place in their farms currently and also less optimistic about the future. And especially the future aspect, Michael, I think does tie in very heavily to these uh, rising input costs. It's been uh, pretty much off the charts. And, and people are really, I guess, uneasy about it is how I would put it. What's your take? Yeah, I think it creates a lot of uncertainty and we've seen a lot of increases already. And, and the question becomes, uh, are we going to see more increases? Fertilizer, seed, uh, fuel, uh, you know, what's going to happen to some of these things given the, given the large variability and large increases we've seen recently? And, and I think the corollary to that is there's increasing concern on some of these inputs regarding their availability. Um, that's particularly true on some of the crop protection items that uh, we're hearing about with respect to things like glyphosate, whether or not uh, they'll be available. And if it is available, it's going to be a lot more expensive. Uh, Liberty, another main herbicide that a lot of producers use. So just a lot of unease out there with respect to not only the prices, but also am I going to be able to get the inputs that I want when I need them or when I want them. So despite the weakness in sentiment, we did see... Uh, a little bit of an improvement in the Farm Financial Performance Index. I wouldn't argue it was a significant one, but a, a small uptick. Uh, the reading went from 104 last month to 106 this month. We had a small increase in the percentage of producers that said they were expecting better financial performance on their farms, and the percent expecting no change actually declined. So it was a shift from that no change category uh, to people's, at least a few people expecting a somewhat better performance. Um, were you surprised by that little uptick? Um, not really. I'm, I'm not surprised that this one's not coming down as fast as some of the end, other indices. And, and that's because uh, the way I would answer this question, I think the way a lot of people are answering this question, is 21 a good crop year? Uh, in, in, term, in terms of net returns, the answer is clearly yes. Uh, 21 is, is still a very very good uh, net, net farm income year. Uh, as we move into 22, I think this could change quite a bit because then they're, then they're looking, at, uh, looking at a much tighter margin situation uh, in 22 uh, compared to 21. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I know, Michael, you simulate uh, returns for a kind of a West Central Indiana corn soybean farm. And 
the returns on that simulated simulated farm look very good for 21, right? Yeah, essentially what's happened in 21, we still have some pretty good crop prices, but we were dealing with input costs that were much, much lower uh, in the spring of 21 when the crop was going into the ground, and also feed costs. Uh, you know, feed costs uh, you weren't necessarily as high uh, as what they have been, uh, you know, have have been recently and, and expected to be uh, in the next few months. And even when you make the comparison not only to input costs last spring, but actually thinking about a lot of those inputs were probably pre-purchased in the fall uh, of 2020 when prices were even lower yet. So uh, all in all, things from a financial perspective, from an accounting perspective for 21 are going to look pretty positive. So a lot of the negativity really relies uh, or really points to what's going to take place in 2022, right? Yeah, that's the way I'm reading. I mean, and 2021 was was the best year we've had since probably 12, 2012. So it's been a long time since we've seen a, a, that good a year in terms of net farm income. Okay. In light of what you just said, this next one is maybe a little surprising. This is the Farm Capital Investment Index, and it fell again to 39. That's the lowest reading we've had on the index since April of 2020, when the pandemic was pandemic was really just kind of unfolding. Um, what do you take? What, what's your what's your perspective? I think there's a couple different things going on here. I mean, it's a little hard to figure out what's going on, but I have a couple hypotheses here. I think one of them is just the availability of, of equipment is really low right now. Uh, you know, there's low inventories of, of new machinery, and, and they're probably not discounting that new machinery very much, if at all. And then used, used machinery prices are, are very high. Uh, and so I think that combination of just not much inventory out there uh, in terms of new machinery and the fact that the prices are are relatively high, particularly for the old machinery, makes them answer this question that this is not necessarily a good time uh, to invest in farm capital. Yeah. So for our listeners, this farm capital investment index is based on a question that says, is now a good time or a bad time to make large investments in your farming operation? So people are telling us pretty overwhelmingly it's not a very good time. The two backup questions we've introduced into the survey in recent months to kind of help explain what's going on here. The first one you already alluded to, which is um, we've been asking people, do low farm machinery inventories, has that had an impact on your machinery purchase plans? And this month, almost half, 44% of the people in the survey said, yeah, that's, that's having an impact on my ability to make investments. And then we've also added a question here recently on uh, construction plans. 57% of producers said their construction plans are lower than a year ago. And again, I think uh, at least a chunk of that is related to the supply constraints, supply chain problems, right? Definitely. And I want to go back to that 44%. That's a huge number because certainly not everybody was going to make machinery purchases this year, regardless of the income. It depends on it depends on where you're at in terms of in terms of how old your machinery is. And so that's a really large number, that 44% that it's impacting their decisions. Yeah, so I think the bottom line is we would be expecting this farm capital investment index to be a lot more positive if it wasn't for the supply chain constraints. We think that's a major reason why this index is as weak as it is. And, you know, if you look at what's taking place in the marketplace with respect to strong demand for new equipment, strong demand for used equipment, it really points to this idea that people are being held back by their inability to get what it is they want, what it is they need. Um, the last few months, we've asked a question about what are your biggest concerns for your farming operation? And we've given them, I think, about six different choices. So I'll just kind of read those off. One of the choices was lower crop and, and or livestock prices. One was higher input cost. One was environmental policy. One was farm policy. One was climate policy. And the last one was COVID's impact. And overwhelmingly, 
producers came back and said higher input costs was their number one concern. I think 47% of the respondents picked that as, a, as one of their number one concerns. No big surprise to me. What do you think? No, this isn't a big surprise. If we'd asked this last year at this time, that wouldn't have been 47%. That would have been much, much smaller number. Uh, I think the policy probably would have been just as high, if not higher, uh, and perhaps the lower crop and livestock prices would have been higher. And so, and so it's, it's obvious that these higher input costs are what's on individuals' mind. Yeah, so for a little perspective there, 16% said lower crop or livestock prices. Uh, environmental policy came in at 13%, and then the others were all single digits. So it's clear that high input cost, a squeeze on operating margins is really what's on producers' minds. Um, no big surprise then when we came back and said, uh, with the question says, that average price paid for farm inputs increased by 1.8% per year during the last 10 years. That's historical index data from USDA. Using this as a frame of reference, by how much do you expect input prices to change during the next 12 months? 55% of the people in the survey picked the highest bucket we gave them, which was uh, uh, greater than 12%. Um, so huge change there relative to last month. Last month it was 33% said greater than 12%. Now we're at 55%. Um, any any surprise there at all? Not really. I mean, and just to put this in perspective, when we asked this in October, uh, 50%, over 50% were 8 to 12% and greater than 12%. Now we have over 50% that are greater than 12%. And so it's just a skyrocketing uh, in terms of the uh, percentage increase. And, and I think this is very consistent uh, when you look at corn budgets in particular. Uh, corn break-even prices are, are probably going to be 20% or more higher than what they were a year ago. And so I think that's what we're picking up. Corn's a very important crop, uh, obviously, in the in this survey. And, and soybeans look like they're not going to be up, up that much. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if it breaks 10% uh, in terms of increase in, in soybean prices. And so the, the two crops that we look at pretty closely, Jim, uh, those break-even prices are up substantially. And I think it's very consistent with the results uh, in this survey. The other way of looking at this is to look at those, the lowest bucket on the survey, which was 0 to 4%. And the first two times we asked this question, which was June and July of this past summer, 44 and 45 percent of the people in the survey said they expected input price inflation to run, run between zero and four percent. This month, that was down to eight percent. So that's just the other way of looking at this, uh, the other side of this. And, and it's just been a dramatic change in a really, really short span of time. So despite the negativity, we picked up an overall sentiment. And despite the concerns that we've picked up with respect to input prices and the potential squeeze that could put on operating margins, producers remain optimistic about where farmland values are headed. The long-term farmland value expectation index did decline this month, but not by much. It declined three points to 158 versus 161 a month ago. But I have to point out that 161 a month ago was record high, and the 158 leaves us just off of the record high. So people are pretty optimistic about farmland values. And I want to emphasize this is the long-term index. That's looking out five years. And I guess, Michael, if there's something about this that surprises me a little bit is we have seen so much strength in farmland values over the last year. People are looking at this and saying, even with the rise that we have had over the last 12 to maybe a little longer uh, term in the just 12 months. But even on top of that, 
we still think prices are headed higher the next five, five, excuse me, five years. Yeah, that's 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 somewhat surprising. I mean, certainly from a short-term perspective, uh, all the all the factors impacting land values are are, are aligned uh, to be very positive for land values. Str- you know, strong cash flow, low interest rates. Uh, you know, the high inflation is actually beneficial to agriculture. Strong working capital, or a very large increase in working capital in '21, and so and a very low return on alternative investments. All of those things are very positive for land values. Well, when you start looking out at five years, I don't know. If the cash flow is going to be near as strong, uh, it, you know, at 22, 23, 24 uh, compared to 21. And, and, and so it, that is a little surprising to see see that strength in that in that question related to the next five years. Yeah. So I think it's going to be interesting. We're going to try in future surveys to maybe learn a little bit more about what's driving that in, in terms of producers' minds. But it uh, I have to say, I think the interest rate factor is probably huge, don't you think? Yes, I think that's a huge factor. And then that's something that looks like it's not going to change all that much uh, for the foreseeable future. And so that, that's, a, that's a very positive factor in the next five years for land values. So- I have to say, was that your official forecast for interest rates? Uh, my official for, forecast, forecast is they probably will increase a little bit, but the increases they will still have very low interest rates compared to where we were even even five to ten years ago. Uh, and so, even if we see a, a, a percent increase, which would be a fairly large increase, uh, if, you know, if you if you uh, uh, you know listen to the Federal Reserve uh, Reserve Bank discussions, uh, even with that, we we still have relatively low interest rates, and so that's where I'm coming from on that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The Fed is talking about raising rates sooner than they had discussed previously. But you're right, from a historical standpoint, that would still leave them by relatively low levels compared to to the long-term history. Um, We've been asking people going back to May now what they think is going to happen with respect to cash rents for farmland. Uh, This question goes specifically to corn and soybean producers. And we saw a change this month. 52% 52% of the producers in the survey said they expect to see higher cash rents. Last month, that was only 43%. And last month, Michael, our story was uh, we were seeing a little bit of weakness with respect to that expectation for higher cash rents. And we thought that was tied to this run-up in uh, farm input uh, cost. Apparently, they were worried about that this month. We came back with 52% versus 43% last month. This is probably one of the most surprising results in the survey, to me at least. The fact that that increased to 43% you know, last month, thought that cash rents were going to go up. Now it's 52%. Um, we didn't ask this month by how much, uh, uh, but this is still a very surprising to me that it, that, it, it, that there was 52% uh, thought that cash rents were going to go up in 2022. So... To put a little perspective on this, the first time we asked this question was back in May. And at that point, two-thirds of the people in the survey, 65%, said they expected to see higher cash rental rates. But then as we saw this rise in farm input costs occur, that percentage was kind of dropping below that 50% mark. And last month, 43%, so that 9% point jump this month was, I guess, unexpected from my perspective. Yeah, definitely unexpected. So it'll be interesting to see. We're going to ask that again this month. So it's going to be interesting to see if that continues or where that goes here over the next couple of months. I think the other thing that could be feeding into this, Michael, is the fact that by now, most of those cash rental agreements have been settled for 2022. And so maybe this is really reflecting what's already happened. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, it, maybe this is it's consistent with a September number. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's the way, the way that was settled when they did the negotiations. 
So there continues to be a lot of interest, uh, especially in the Eastern Corn Belt, with respect to leasing farmland for solar energy production. And so we asked questions about that back in June and July, and we chose to ask a couple of those questions again this month. And the one I want to focus on is the response we got to payment rates per acre that are offered. So this question was going to people who said that they had engaged in discussions with companies about solar leasing, which is a fairly small subset of our total survey. But they, then we turned around and we asked them, what, what rates were you offered? And we kind of put it in buckets for them to kind of make it easy to sort. So the buckets we gave were less than $500 an acre, 500 to 750, then 750 to 1,000, and 1,000 dollars or more. And for clarity, these are the payment rates people would be receiving um, longer term after the construction phase is completed. So this is the, the longer term lease payments. And I have to say, the payment rates continue to be all over the map. What's your take? Yeah, they're they're pretty much all over the board. But I, I do find it interesting that uh, what is the percentage there? About sixty percent now, or or seven seven hundred fifty to a thousand, or over a thousand. So uh, that percentage is higher than what it was uh, when we asked this in June and July. Yeah, so we we continue to get a, a sizable percentage of these folks that say they're being offered less than five hundred dollars an acre, which strikes me as pretty low. Um, yeah, I think in June it was thirty two percent in that category. In July, it was 22%. This month, it was 25%. But then as you, as you kind of look at the data a little more carefully, and you kind of pointed this out, Michael, there appears to be a drift towards higher rates. Now, uh, given the small number of respondents we're getting here, uh, I don't think we can say definitively that higher rates have, have taken place across the board, but it certainly looks like that's the drift. Because as you point out, I think if you combine that 750 to 1,000 and the 1,000 or more category, uh, this month, that was 57%. If you go back to June, uh, that was, what, 46%. So it looks like there's a little drift towards the higher rates. We're going to continue to monitor this and kind of see where this goes longer term. But there is a lot of interest, especially here in Indiana, but Eastern Corn Belt in general, I think, with respect to solar leasing. So one of the one of the uh, takeaways from this information, and, and along with all the other uh, times we've done the, the, the questions related to solar, is do your homework. Uh, can, you know, figure out what other people have been getting uh, for some of these contracts, and then and the contract itself. Make sure you have someone look at that contract and study it very carefully. Yeah, one of the things that's uh, going on, of course, is the developers are looking very carefully at what the infrastructure is. So if you're in an area where the infrastructure looks pretty positive for solar development, um, yeah, I, I would say do your homework. Uh, don't get in a hurry with respect to signing one of these contracts. Do your homework. Um, there's a lot of details to consider just beyond just the rate, too. Uh, a lot of background in terms of how that development would take place, um, what the restrictions are in the land usage, uh, what the restrictions are with respect to uh, perhaps down the road, removing this equipment. So a lot of things to consider in addition to just the rate. But it does look like those rates might be shifting a little bit towards the high side. And then uh, this is a repeat question that we posed starting last fall. So before the election, we asked a series of questions. Uh, before the election in, in 2020, we asked a series of questions about farm, from farmers with respect to expected changes over the next five years. And then we repeated them immediately after the election and for several months. And then we came back here in, in uh, this most recent survey and, and repeated them. So uh, it's interesting. Farmer expectations regarding changes in policies affecting U.S. ag 
in the next five years. And the three buckets we're going to focus on are expectations about more restrictive environmental regulations, higher estate taxes, and higher income taxes. And we saw a big jump immediately following the election last year. So before the election, uh, only 41% of the people said they expected more restrictive environmental regulations in the upcoming five years. Only 40% said they expected higher estate taxes. And only 35% said they expected higher income taxes. All three of those jumped immediately after the election. And they have remained at elevated levels. Uh, and that was, I guess, the, the takeaway I took from this month's survey, Michael, looking at it. Um, really not too much change in November versus where these folks were at back in January. 80%, over 80% say they expect to see more restrictive environmental regulations. 74% say they expect to see higher estate taxes. That's up from 40% before the election. Uh, higher income taxes this month was at 77% versus 35% felt that way before the election. Um, what do you think? Yeah, very consistent with what we found last winter. And, and I think this is adding to the uncertainty. It's not just, and I think it's important to remember, it's not just input costs that are perhaps, uh, uh, you know, perhaps uh, explaining where, where, the, where the ag economy barometer index is at the current, current time. I think it's also related to policy uncertainty. And I think that's what this particular slide points to, uh, that we might see more environmental regulations. How is that going to impact agriculture? We don't know until we see what those regulations are. And then that fact that uh, they're worried about taxes going up, both estate and income taxes, that creates some uncertainty and it makes it more difficult to make decisions. Yeah, I think, I think the weakness in the barometer overall reflects a combination of higher cost, uh, potential squeeze on margins, particularly for crop farmers, but also to some extent the livestock sector. And then couple that with just this general uncertainty out there, and I think that explains the weak sentiment. Uh, and that's despite the fact that we're having a very strong income year, especially for crop producers, right? So strong income on the crop side, uh, not, not so much on the livestock side, but the uh, over half of our survey is, is focused pretty much on crop producers. So um, we've only been doing the survey since 2015, but certainly over that time frame, this is really unprecedented, right? Yeah, and certainly the the weakness in the index of current conditions is 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 a little bit of a head scratcher when you think about you know how, how good the margins were in twenty one, and so they're they're thinking beyond that. I think they're definitely looking ahead to twenty two, even though it's current condition index, but they're also looking at these these higher input costs and some of this policy uncertainty. Yeah, very much so. Well, that wraps up our discussion for today. Uh, for more details about the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, go to our website, which is Purdue.edu slash Ag Barometer. The next Ag Economy Barometer will be released on Tuesday, January 4th. And you can join us for our next Outlook webinar on December 15th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we're going to broadcast this one live from the Indiana Farm Equipment and Technology Expo, which will be held down in Westfield, Indiana. So that'll be fun to be uh, out in the audience with a, with a bunch of uh, producers. Um, you can register for the webinar at purdue.edu slash commercial ag if you're not able to attend in person. And you'll uh, receive a link and be able to watch it live or later on uh, on our YouTube channel. So I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And so on behalf of Michael Langemar and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening. <music>